Welcome to the Logically Faithful Show. This is Caldoon Swite, one of my intellectual heroes, Professor Nancy Piercy. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> you are uh, called by the economist the America's preeminent evangelical Protestant intellectual. <laughs> I worked out a mouthful. I love it. Uh, your uh, recent book is Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. Uh, you definitely don't uh, have a problem getting away from the, uh, the tough questions of life, do you? <laughs> uh, yeah, that one takes on all the cutting-edge issues. <laughs> it is the hottest potato you can get on. Um, Total Truth, uh, Liberating Christianity from its Cultural Captivity, which won the 2005 ECPA Golden Medallion Award. And uh, one of my favorites is How Now Shall We Live with uh, Chuck Colson, one of my, uh, it's a life-transformative book for me a number of years ago. Uh, you are still visiting scholar at Biola and at Houston Baptist uh, University, is that correct? Uh, not at Biola, only at Houston Baptist now. I'm a uh, professor of apologetics and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. Wonderful. Uh, you're still uh, addressing people on Capitol Hill, the White House. You've had multiple appearances with multimedia, uh, Washington Post, Washington Times, First Things, Human Events, Christianity Today, Daily Center, etc. May your tribe increase and may God continue to strengthen you to continue doing what you're doing as a world and culture changer. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay. Uh, what I'd like to do today uh, in, in this process uh, with this interview is to get on some of the, the heat, uh, heated issues of the day, uh, the ones that you address in your book primarily. But before I do all that, uh, let's get something personal here. Why do you continue to do what you do, given the amount of vitriol that you're facing and the, the persecution um, that you may be uh, going against in this? Well, what, what is it that drives you? What drives me, really, is my own conversion to Christianity. Um, I, went, I was raised in a Christian home, a very nominal Christian home. And when I was in high school, I, I just started asking questions. Hmm. And the main question was simply, how do we know Christianity is true? That's all I wanted to know. Okay. <laughs> you know, people say, well, didn't you have questions about, I don't know, the problem of evil or something else? No. no. I had already stepped out of the system. Mm. So I wasn't asking detailed questions. I was asking overall questions. How do we know this whole system is true? And unfortunately, back then, there wasn't a lot of apologetics. And nobody in my life could answer that question. I'll give you a, a few examples. Um, I spoke to a Christian university professor. Okay. And I asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? Uh-huh. He said, works for me. Wow. And I said, that's it. <laughs> P- pragmatism, huh? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Exactly. And I thought, well, it's not working for me anymore. <laughs> um, and I even had a chance to talk to a Christian um, seminary dean. And his only answer was, don't worry. We all have doubts sometimes. Hmm. And, of course, then I said, well, why don't you have answers to my doubts? <laughs> it, it occurred to me at, at some point I decided if Christianity doesn't have any good reasons, then you shouldn't believe it. Because you shouldn't believe anything that doesn't have good reasons, um, Christianity or anything else. So I very intentionally set aside my Christian upbringing and decided I would have to embark on a search for truth. I would have to try to find out you know, on my own, since I couldn't find any adults to help me, I'd have to find out what, what was true. And I, was, I wanted to know questions like, you know, how do we know truth? Mm. And is there meaning to life? Mm-hmm. And is there a foundation for ethics? And I, I pretty rapidly decided the answer was no on mm. all of these things, that, um, that you know, I became a moral relativist. I was, I was the one in my high school, among my high school friends, who was arguing that there is no right or wrong. And, yeah, a friend of mine said, oh, she's so wrong. And I said, you can't say anyone's right or wrong. I realized pretty quickly that if, if there was no Christian God, mm-hmm. then there was no basis for morality, for truth, for meaning in life. We're just going on a... Right, science process is on a rock flying through empty space, and that's it. Hmm. And now that you see that this um, this rock flying through empty space hypothesis is is, is wrong, I imagine you uh, you ground that in the very uh, person of Christ who calls himself the way, the truth, 
and the life. But how do you then, let, let's get into some philosophical work here. How would you define truth? Because there's a, a strong consensus in culture and in psychology and even in philosophy for the last number of generations, especially the number of decades in postmodernism, that truth itself is, um, uh, it, it, although it may be objective in one sense, the noumena that we can't talked about, we can't actually access that because we don't have God's eye point of view, do we? We can't right. access the objective reality out there. All we have is our subjective longings for it. So, so let's let me throw the question back at you. How would you define truth? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is the exact process of my own thinking. As a teenager, still in high school, I became a complete skeptic because I said, you know, if, if all I have is my puny brain in the vast scope of time and history and space, how can I have any sort of absolute or universal truth? Ridiculous. It struck me as ridiculous to think that I could know truth. And it was um, it was several years later that I ended up at the ministry of Francis Schaeffer in Switzerland, which is called Labrie. And as you know, Francis Schaeffer devised a kind of apologetics that, that really spoke to, to the postmodern mindset better than anyone else in his time. By the way, and, it's awesome. It's wonderful that you worked under him and studied under him. I, I found that to be very inspiring. Exactly. And it was, and it was uh, to, totally by chance, which really means by providence. Right. <laughs> because I was going to school in Germany. Hmm. We had lived there when I was a child, and I had gone back because I, I liked it. And uh, some family members were passing through Labrie. And because sometimes people say, if you weren't a Christian, why would you go to a Christian place? Well, I did not intend to go to a Christian place. I just went to visit my family members because I was not going to see them before they went back to the States. And so I ended up in this little uh, this little village in the Swiss Alps. Um, and... And I met these Christians who could actually make intellectual arguments. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> I was astonished. I didn't think so. I had never encountered apologetics. I didn't think such a thing existed. I was blown away to run into Christians who could give reasons and arguments for Christianity. And and by then I was pretty deeply immersed in philosophy because, well, I, again, because I was looking for truth, I decided. Well, who talks about truth? It must be the philosophers, right? Mm-hmm. So, already back in high school, I started going back, I, down the hallway on my own to the library in the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf. And it, Because I thought, well, if I can't get any adults to talk to me about truth and meaning, maybe these philosophers are, are where you can find the answers. And so I've been pretty deeply immersed in philosophy. And here were Christians who understood the philosophers and knew the arguments from the philosophers. I, I couldn't believe it. In fact, I have to tell you, Colton, uh-huh. I was so impressed that I left. <laughs> the first time I was at Labrie, I stayed only a month okay. because it was so attractive. It was so appealing that I was afraid I might be drawn in emotionally, and mm. I didn't want that. You know, Christianity had let me down once before, and I was not going to make that step unless I was absolutely intellectually convinced it was true. And so it was actually a year and a half later, um, I became a Christian purely on my own, just through my own reading. And a year and a half later, I went back to Labrie and stayed another four months. And that's when I really got grounded in my understanding of Christianity as a total worldview. Mm. So There's a, a long process. Yes. Well, well, going back to that, then you did embrace it because you did find it to be fundamentally true objectively outside of yourself. What well, goes back to the earlier question I asked you, now that you are um, a seasoned professional in the field, you've gone through it, you've worked through the arguments, you've dealt with the objections, would you still define truth the same way you defined it back then? Would you, um, would you ground it that way? How, is there more I'm nuance? I'm glad you asked me that question because... Um, uh, Schaefer used to sometimes say what he did was pre-evangelism. You know, he had to, he had to um, knock down all the barriers people had in their minds before you could even get to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly true in my case. Um, and, and it was particularly on the question of truth. I had become such a skeptic and a relativist that I didn't believe there was such a thing as truth. 
And I really had to argue you know, with the, the staff and the teachers there at Labrie. I had to argue first and become convinced that there was such a thing as objective truth before I could even consider whether Christianity was that objective truth. So it was a two-step process. And they first, you know, they, the staff there first had to argue with me and help, and help me to see that there was such a thing as truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so uh, that's. It, I'm glad you asked that because that, that was the heart. That was really the heart of my uh, of my um, questioning about Christianity. Was how do I know this is true? And um, and, and you know the answer and, and ends up being revelation. You know, okay. It is true. The human mind on its own is finite and cannot reach the infinite. And the only answer is if the infinite reaches down to us and reveals truth to us. Um, and of course, there's lots of questions you ask. To, to verify that that's, that that truth claim is really true, mm-hmm. but it, it does narrow your options. If the only way the human mind can know truth is if truth reveals itself to you, there's not that many claims out there that actually claim to be revelation. Mm-hmm. Well, you have Islam, you have a lot of other contra claims that they, they also claim to be uh, the, the truth in one form or another. Even naturalism in one level, even postmodernism in another level, claims itself to be true, you know, denies the concept. They claim to be true, but they don't claim to be revelation. Um, I think you, you're pretty much limited to the monotheistic religions once you realize the human mind on its own cannot find truth. Okay. Uh, so would you then uh, concede that the correspondence theory of truth, as many apologists have been propounding for the last number of decades, uh, is, is a viable option still? Yes. I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's kind of the common sense notion of truth we all deal with, isn't it? That okay. something has to match reality, a statement has to match reality in order to be true. All right. So okay. if that's the case, then let's get into part of our, the discussion, things I want to talk to you about today, which is feminism, Me Too movement, um, toxic masculinity, whatever that means, <laughs> what it means to be human. And so there are many people in our culture, not many, actually less than point five. One percent, even less, even less than that, significantly less than that. Um, the transgender issue, with homosexuality issues, the sexuality issue, the hookup culture, the things you talk about in your book, uh, who claim that what is corresponding to truth, the reality, which is my physical body, does not correspond to my mental um, agreement with that. Therefore, uh, you need to uh, accommodate yourself to that, or I need to either change my body or change the way I see it. It seems to be modern culture with the. the, the uh, the big push toward that with uh, multimedia and liberalism is saying, no, change the body. But before we even address that, you are saying, wait a minute, before we even address these issues, we need to talk about the worldview behind it. And you called it secular humanism or something of that effect um, in your book. Uh, address how, how our worldview forms, how we even think about sexuality, let alone transgenderism, homosexuality or transgenderism. Right. You know, the, the, the sort of thread that goes through the whole book, Love Thy Body, is that ethics is based on a view of the body. And people tend to think Christianity is an otherworldly religion that does not have much room for respect or the dignity of the body. But in fact, it's the opposite. And it's a secular, liberal ethic that has no respect for the body. And, and this is most obvious in, in the transgender movement, because transgender activists themselves argue explicitly that gender has nothing to do with biological sex. Right. A BBC documentary on the subject said, at the heart of the debate is the idea that your, your mind can be at war with your body. Hmm. And in that, in that war, it's the mind that wins. Right? Hmm. It's the mind that counts how you feel, how, you, how your sexual desires, your sense of self. And so today, if you, uh, there are books that teach this view all the way down to kindergarten, all the way down to young, you know, two and three-year-olds are being taught that their body tells them nothing about who they are. It's not part of their authentic self. Hmm. And so our response as Christians should be, why accept such a demeaning view of the body? I recently read an interview with a 14-year-old girl. Okay had lived as a trans boy for three years, from age 11, and then reclaimed her identity as a girl. Hmm. And in the interview, she says, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. 
And I thought, wow. this, this came out after my book had already gone to print. And I thought, what a great quote that would have been for a book titled Love Thy Body. And I think it's an astonishing that even secular people, uh, this is a very secular liberal website. Okay. Even secular liberal people are beginning to see that the heart of transgenderism is this rejection of the body. Or as I saw recently, again, a secular writer saying, this is body hatred. So this is really the core. Of, it turns out, in Love Thy Body, I show uh-huh. that um, this is really the core of all of the moral issues that we're facing today. The, 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 the rejection of the body that God has given us to manipulate that to what we would like it to be and want it to do. Um, which, okay. Well, the uh, the Olympics are taking on taking this onto steam. Uh, it was happening there, where that many some woman transgender woman or men are <laughs> coming forward and saying they want to play, and there's some opposition rising from that. Uh, these women are taking on roles traditionally done by women, but their me- transgender men are winning the roles, winning the Olympics, winning the medals, and there's protests going on, and those who do protest are considered bigots. Right, and what's interesting is most of those protesters are feminists. You know, they're, they're very liberal, secular feminists. Um, there's a there's actually a group um, uh, now of very conservative Christian women and very secular socialist lesbian women. It's called Hands Across the Aisle because we're finding, and I'm, I'm a member of that group, we're finding that we have this in common that femi- even feminists are saying this this denigration of the body undercuts women's rights hmm. because you can't identify a woman by her biology by just being biologically female then you cannot protect women you cannot pass uh, laws that, that enforce special protections for women if you cannot identify what a woman is <laughs> yeah okay let's do that then how would you define a woman is a transgender man or a transgender woman a woman or a man how, how do we even begin to even answer the question right and this is why again it's so ironic that it's Christians today who are arguing for science and for biology hmm. because that's not our typical you know the stereotype of Christian but Christians today are saying if you're biologically female or biologically male that's what counts and there's no spectrum in between a lot of people use the phenomenon of intersex in right. order to argue that there's a, a spectrum. But even so, there's only two gametes. You know, there's the sperm and there's egg. There's no spectrum in between, biologically speaking. And again, the only way you can deny that is to deny the relevance of biology. And, and why, why would you do that? And here's where I get more, more philosophical in Love Thy Body. I show that... It's ultimately derivative of your view of nature. You know, where where the, the secular ethic comes from is a worldview that sees nature as a cosmic accident, as right. a bro- product of blind material forces with, with no higher purpose or meaning. And so what it does then is it reduces the human body to just a collection of atoms and cells and tissues, no different really than any other chance configuration of matter. And what that means is our bodies convey no moral message. They give no clue to our identity. They have no inherent purpose that we are morally, morally obligated to respect. Okay. So well, that goes back to the other question then. How, how would you... So is a transgender man a man? No. Uh, wait. A, trans, a transgender man is... You know, with, when you talk to people about this... Okay, you have who's to biologically concerned. female says I'm well, a man. What do you... What do you what, what because when you, when you say trans man, mm-hmm. people think, oh, that's some kind of man. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the language can confuse people. So you always, when I write articles on this, um, and I have published several, what I do is I always say a trans man, and then in parentheses, born female, or okay. parentheses, someone who is biologically female. Or on the other side, a trans woman is someone who is biologically male. And you have to be very careful with that because the language can be confusing. So, I, yes, I think that biblically speaking, we are meant to take our identity from our biology. So that if you're biologically female, you're female. Biologically male, you're a man. Okay. Uh, and, and, and again, it goes back to your view of nature. So you can so, in principle reproduce as a female, therefore you're, that would be qualify you as one of the main characteristics or essential characteristics of being a female. 
we are as humans are a sexually reproducing species. Okay. <laughs> there's no, there's no way around that. So then that leads me to the next question: Are you? Would you consider yourself a feminist? Um, of course, there's the common Judith Butler examples or uh, uh, Simone Beauvoir's feminists. Are you a feminist? And, and, you know, that's a really good question because when I was younger, I was very attracted to feminism. And I did call myself a feminist. And I did scour the shelves of the local library for books on feminism and always add one or two on my nightstand. So I read all the classic feminist books and I thought they were wonderful. <laughs> And um, it was, uh, and eventually, by the way, um, I became pro-life. And, you know, I didn't become pro-life until I'd been a Christian several years. Okay. In fact, it wasn't until Francis Schaeffer went around the country with his film series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, mm-hmm. that I realized that to be a Christian, you really needed to defend life in the womb. Um, and so so that, that, that was the beginning of my disillusionment with feminism. But yeah, I found... Okay. I found a group called Pro Life Feminists. Yes, you know those. <laughs> I've heard of them. Yes, okay. I'll, I'll link to them in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I. So I was. Uh, it turned out that the local representative literally lived in my neighborhood. So I, I jumped up, walked down the street, <laughs> and became a pro life feminist. Hmm. So I did that for several years, and then eventually, um, you know, feminist became feminism became so connected to, um, well. The main things they were arguing for were, things, were lesbianism and and abortion, and I finally realized that to use the word feminist was too dis, too misleading. It would imply agreement with the secular feminist movement, and I could no longer do that. So I I did I did drop that language. So um, how would you define? Okay, so then you're not a feminist in the, the, the common way the term is used in a common vernacular. The, the general feminist would argue for um, domestic violence, maternity leave, equal pay, women's suffrage, sexual harassment, sexual violence. But the like you mentioned earlier, the idols have become um, homosexuality or lesbianism and, and abortion. These are, if, you don't, if you don't bow to these two idols, you disqualify yourself from the feminist movement, don't you? Exactly, exactly. And that's what made it so difficult for people who had some sympathy for some of their goals, uh, but but couldn't buy into lesbianism or, or abortion. Um, and as you probably know, the women's the women's march. There was a group of, of pro life women who tried to join the march, and they were kicked out. Said, nope, nope, you don't belong here. Hmm. So it's not that we necessarily denied them; they kicked us out. Wow. <laughs> but it's true. It's true that you can no longer really use the term feminist. Um, because of the way it's used in the public realm today, the, um, secular feminists. Let's get into that um, the, the the public realm's idea that men and women are essentially the same, biologically speaking. That can be altered. Um, that we should be treated the same in outcomes as well as in opportunities. Uh, there is a strong movement now with the APA's recent guidelines against masculinity in the traditional sense is harmful to boys, which I find to be very problematic. Um, but I wanted to touch base with you on that. Let's help define and um, and dig deep into these 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 life changing questions. What does it really mean to be a man and a woman? Masculinity and femininity. Go ahead and um, open the door on those for us. Help us see clearly from a biblical point of view how to look at these differently. Well, I, I get a lot out of the history, because the history of concepts of masculinity and femininity have changed. And so we can't just define them by whatever is current. Um, in my book, Total Truth, I have a chapter where I go back into the history of, of masculinity and femininity, and I show, I show how they changed. And this came, I have to tell you, this came out of my own personal search, because yeah, I did consider myself a feminist back back when I was younger, and uh, it really came to a head when I had my first child. Mm. And I had to, I was in seminary at the time, and I had to drop out of seminary. Okay. And I thought, <laughs> uh, I I felt like I was dropping into a black hole. You know, my my main interests were all you know academic, and if I had to drop out of seminary, what would happen to my life? And you know, my, obviously, men who become fathers don't face that same tension. Mm-hmm. They don't face that same challenge that, you know, they may have to drop out of what is their main calling and vocation and talent and passion in life. And so that's when I really started researching this. And I realized, you know, it was not always that way. 
there was a time when productive, economically productive work was done in the home. Okay. And as a result, men and women both had a more balanced life. They could both be involved in, in economically productive work, but they could also both be involved in childbearing since work took place in the home. And so both men and women tended to have a, a, a greater uh, balance you know, you you survived. You know, your your economic base was not the father's job; it was the family industry. Mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned earlier, I used to live in Germany, and in German villages at the time, it's still that way. You could. I have to tell you, when we went shopping in this little German village, mm-hmm. we would take a big bag and we would go to the butcher shop, and. The husband and wife are working side by side. The butcher shop is in the front room of a home. And even my, um, I was in school, so my classmates would come home from school and help in the family business. I would see my classmates running the cash register or sweeping the floor. So the whole family's involved. And then we would go to the grocer, same thing. Then we go to the baker. Yeah, family business, right? And so, yes, there was, in the 1960s, Germany, you could still see this pre-industrial work pattern where the entire family is involved. So fathers are much more involved with their children than they are today. And mothers had a chance to be involved in economically productive work. They weren't, they weren't shut off to just, you know, uh, cleaning the sinks and raising young children. Okay. So what did this cha- where did this change? It changed with the, with the uh, Industrial Revolution because mm-hmm. that took work out of the home. Which sounds like a simple change, but what it meant was you could no longer work with your family alongside in the home. So men had no choice but to follow their work out of the home and into factories and offices. And women were eventually increasingly deprived of any sort of economically productive work because it was all being taken out of the home. Mm. And they were left basically with housework and early childcare. And, of course, not only work, but things like um, all the other family functions. What about education? You know, this is the beginning of um, compulsory education where the kids now, most children get most of their education outside of the home. Um, uh, uh, caring for the ill, caring for the old becomes professionalized and it's done in institutions. So more and more, and even, uh, even recreation is no longer something many people do at home. It's something you go out and buy. You have something you have right. to purchase. Yes. And today it's electronics. Everyone's isolated on their own personal electronics. And so the upshot was that, um, you know, the early feminists, they argued men left the home because they had to follow their work. Yes. You know, women's traditional work is out of the home too now. Mm. And the early feminists simply yes. argued, we're just doing what men did. We had to leave the home. But the problem is, of course, what do you do then about children? Right. Who is going to take care of the children? And that is the, that, that's where the, the feminist response doesn't work. Most women do not want to turn their children over to the care of, of hired caretakers. Mm-hmm. They want to, you know, children, raising children is not just a task. It's a relationship. And most women want that relationship with their children. In fact, they want their husbands to be more involved in relationship with their children, too. Mm. So this is kind of what, this is sort of the history of how these issues have become a, a, a problem for us today. Well, even today, the feminist answer is, well, fine, put the kids in daycare. Right. Have abortion in daycare. Abortion so that you can time your pregnancies when, it's, when it fits into your career. And daycare after that. So that you can compete on an equal level with men, and it's it just the the objection is people who just you know who value family, who value the relationship in their family. You've said a lot there regarding the history of it. Thank you for that uh, history lesson for us and the growth of that. Let's um, take this in. I've heard a lot of um, sermons regarding the uh, importance of being a man, and I've taken those to heart and tried to do that for my own family. However, modern feminism seems to seep into the, the church or the Christian mindset because a lot of times we try to evangelize culture and not realize culture is evangelizing us. In the, um, in the Danvers statement, I want to run this by you and get more controversial here. <laughs> uh, it says, um, in the family, 
Husbands should forsake harsh and selfish leadership and grow in love and care for their wives. Wives should forsake resistance to their husband's authority and grow in loving, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. Now, I don't know if you can get more politically incorrect by that statement, but go ahead and uh, take a hash that apart for us. I've actually um, published a couple of articles on quote-unquote toxic masculinity. And here's my take on it. Again, the history makes such a difference in how we understand these issues. The, the, the meaning of terms have, have changed. What do you think it did to the male character when they were out of the home all day for the first time after the Industrial Revolution? Hmm. Okay, before that, they are working alongside their wives and children most of the day. Yes. Um, they are, they're, they're the ones who are really training their children in adult work skills. They're the ones who are considered um, primarily important in terms of their children's uh, intellectual and spiritual growth. Do you realize, before the Industrial Revolution, most books on childbearing and mm-hmm. parenting, sermons, pamphlets, advice columns in the newspaper, etc., were all addressed to men? Hmm. Most literature on childbearing was addressed to the father. Uh, going to your typical bookstore today, how many are, <laughs> how many fatherhood books are there? Yeah. They're all just to women. They're all just to the mother. Well, Paul addresses men as a, to be fa- primary fathers to their children. The, the 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 Old Testament law or the Hebrew law talks about the importance of that. I just over and over again, fathers to rear their children in the fear and admission of God. And they're assuming as an economic system where men are actually interacting with their children throughout mm. the day. Mm. Now, even, even Jesus, right? He's being trained by his father throughout the day because uh, usually a carpentry workshop like that would probably want to be attached to the home or, or one of the outbuildings of the home. That's, that's how it was back before the Industrial Revolution. So it made sense for the father to be the primary parent because he was interacting with his children all day. But what do you think it meant for a man when, for the first time, he's in the workforce, not working alongside his wife and children, mm-hmm. but working alongside other men? Mm. No longer part of an integrated unit with his family and maybe some, some other um, you know, extended family and so on, but now is working as an individual alongside other individuals. The whole philosophy of work changed. People began to argue in favor of competition and individualism and, well, Adam Smith's economic theories, that you're in the workplace as, as a competitor with other, with other individuals. And as a result, because this was something that you couldn't, you know, people began to then rewrite, rewrite the script for men, so to speak. And whereas in the past, man was seen as the... Um, the, the, well, let me, actually, let me talk for a minute about the concept of authority, even. Okay. The concept of authority changed. The fact that a man was working alongside his wife and children all day did not mean he, it did not, uh, mean he wasn't in authority. He was. But the concept of authority back then had a different meaning. How so? Uh, How so? The, the, you know, we all look out for our own interests. That's natural. But who looks out for the common good? Who looks out for the interests of the whole? Back then, there was a very organic notion of a whole, you know, the marriage, the family, the church, the, the, the city, the civitas. Um, there was a notion of an organic whole, so that there was what's, what was good for you as an individual, but there was what, what was the good for the, for the marriage, or what's good for you as an individual, but what's good for the family. And we all look out for our own good, but who looks out for the good of a whole? That was called the common good. Because it was the good of the unit of the whole, you know, either the marriage, the family, the church, the society, and so on. Uh, the person in authority was the one who had the office, was considered an office, the office of looking out for the common good. And so the, the, from the beginning, um, this, here in America in particular, uh, this was partly taken from um, uh, Republican... Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the language now. Sorry. I hope, do, you, do you edit these? <laughs> yes, I edit them significantly. Um, we can come back and put it in the show notes when it comes out back to you. Okay. 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 Um, what was it called? Um, 
there's a term I'm, I'm trying to remember here that uh, classical republicanism. That's oh, the term. Classical republicanism. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So in early America, the, the dominant political theory was classical republicanism, mm-hmm. and what it said was uh, the person in authority had the office to look out for the common good. And that he was supposed to be disinterested. That means he was not supposed to look out for his own personal interests. He was the one who was in charge of looking out for the interests of the, the whole. So, as a result, uh, with, that, with that notion of authority, who wouldn't like it? You know? right. Who would object? But when, um, but when men started going out of the home and into the workforce as an individual, uh-huh. not charged with looking out for the common good, but charged with personal advancement, uh-huh. um, personal ambition. It, it now seemed to be appropriate for people to be to be driven, for men in particular, they're the ones in the public realm, to be driven by personal ambition and a competitive impulse. Did you know this is when the, I, the word competitive even entered the English language? Mm. We didn't even have a word for a person who was driven by you know, a, a, a relish for combat. Are you... Are you familiar with the work of a um, recent work of a, who's come to a lot of prominence? Of course, you must be Jordan Peterson on, um, mm-hmm. yeah, on his work. And he's been arguing a lot, um, reverting back to the the Genesis narrative of the man finding his true purpose by being the provider, protector of his family, and finding responsibility in that. And woman being the nurturer, caregiver of her family, and find, finding her meaning and purpose in that. Of course, these can interchange and overchange, and um, you know, go back and forth depending on circumstances, single moms, things of that nature. Um, each one can take on the other's role, but primarily, God created one for providing, protecting, one for nurturing, caring. They find their deepest sense of longing and fulfillment when they do these things. Primarily, of course, they can interchange. Um, do you find any truth to that work that Peterson is talking about regarding um, the psyche of our being, the inner being? Yeah, it is so interesting that you know he's a non-Christian and yet he's seeing he's going back and seeing this all this with fresh eyes. Yes, Unless, you know some people who've grown up in Christianity their whole lives they they're not seeing it. Um, let, let me go, for, go a little bit further, though, on how we came up with the notion of toxic masculinity, where we decided the idea of of masculinity was bad. Yes. Obviously, everyone, if everyone had been working from a Christian position from the beginning, we would not think masculinity was a bad thing. Providing and protecting, who's against that, right? <laughs> or the one who has the office of looking out for the common good, who can be against that? Right. But when men went out in the workforce as individuals, the definition of masculinity changed. People began to think it was appropriate for them uh, to uh, to act to act under the impulse of personal ambition, and as as, as you know, Kogan, at this time secularism was starting to take over the public realm as well. Yeah, the birth control pill and everything's going. Yeah. So people are starting to say uh-huh. morality does not have any place in the public realm of politics, business, industry, and that the public sphere should be value free. Mm. What does that mean? It means you're supposed to leave values behind in the in the private sphere. You're not supposed to bring your private values into the public world, your, your work, your professional life. And since men are the ones who are working in that public square mm-hmm. at that time, there was less expectation that they would act on moral principles, on duty. And the male character is being redefined as pragmatic and morally insensitive and tough and self-interested. And so what's happening is that Western culture is lowering the bar on what it means to be a man. Western culture did begin expecting less of men. And even in the 19th century, as you probably know, in the 19th century, um, there's there's a huge increase in benevolence in societies, you know, working on things like prostitution mm-hmm. and, um, and and drunkenness and uh, and uh, the temperance movement, right? Working on on working on uh, setting up ministries to young people coming off the farms and trying to find work in the city you know, who are being preyed upon. By um, you know by criminals mm-hmm. and uh, there, there was there was so many uh, benevolent societies that historians refer to them collectively as a benevolent empire. Mm-hmm. But what happened in that case was um, who 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 are the people who are being cast as the villains? Who are the ones who are 
seducing women and then leaving them to get abortions. Huh. Or, you know, who are the men who are um, drinking away the family income? Yes. The, the villain in all of these benevolent societies were men. And so men were being held up more and more as the problem. Uh-huh. And all this to say that when the, the idea of toxic masculinity, read 19th century literature, it's already there. Mm. It's, it's, it has a long history, and we're not going to really be able to deal with it if we're not aware of that history. And it becomes a problem for boys, too. For the first time, boys are, being, are growing up without their fathers. Right. Throughout the day. Mm. And, um, and the older they get, the more difficult it is for women, for, for their mothers, to get on them. Right. So for the first time, you've got boys growing up um, without a lot of structure in their lives. In fact, some historians say this is why schooling became, uh, became legally, you know, legally enforced. Because they were trying to get some structure to these boys. <laughs> but most of the teachers were women, too. <laughs> yeah. So what happens? You begin, to, you begin to find literature in the 19th, late 19th century now about the, the problem of boys growing up without their fathers. Mm. Because even though you, you, know, you don't have a high divorce rate yet, they're growing up without the day-to-day interaction with their, with their fathers. So this is when uh, there's, a, there's a genre of books called bad boy books, mm. and the best known is Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, right? So the boys are growing up, and you know what it means to be a real boy now becomes you know free, rebellious, breaking the rules, and because the rules are rules imposed by women, they've grown up through the whole childhood where structure was being imposed by mothers and female teachers. So structure is something imposed by women. And therefore, to be a true boy, you reject it. You, you rebel against it. So at the end of Huckleberry Finn, uh, he takes off for lands unknown, and he says, it's because Aunt, Aunt Sally, she's going to adopt me and civilize me, and I can't stand that. <laughs> so civilizing is done, you know, that's something done by old maid aunts. Mm. So the, the notion that to be a real man is to uh, is to be wild and rebellious and break the rules. In fact, this is when the legends of the lost frontier became popular. Writers began to try to emphasize the the wild, the untamed hmm. masculine nature, uh, like the lives of Davy Crockett and uh, Dan Moon, hmm. and even the Tarzan books. Yeah, John Wayne and yeah, and then John Wayne, uh, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, etc. So the whole point is we've demoralized the male character. We no longer think of the man as the one who leads his family morally, who who's um, like you said the provider and protector. Instead, well, Playboy shows up in the 1950s. Yes. And who and, and they present marriage as a trap. Hmm. In fact, one of the earliest issues of Playboy said that. Um, Marriage is a trap that will crush man's adventurous, freedom-loving spirit. Wow. So the definition of what it means to be a man has changed so much. It's been demoralized. And no wonder women have begun to protest. Hmm. But you, can see, you, you see this hostility between the sexes all the way back to the 19th century. And that, if you go back there, you st- it, it will give you the tools to think more critically about this debate. In- Let- instead of just looking at what's happened in the last two, you know, couple of months. Of course, yeah, definitely. We have to learn from history. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you for pointing that out to us. Now, let's start to um, now bring this together. Let's try to bring the scriptures in here. Let's try to bring a biblical worldview. And at the same time, offer some solutions or some possible ways we can begin to heal the divide. Um, what does it then mean to be a man or a woman in this this culture that we live in that's, that is toxic in one level? Uh, I, I want to be a good father, a good husband, and a girl wants to be a good wife, a good mother. But the culture tells her something else is what those are. Can you point us to some literature, some uh, other than, of course, your book, um, or some um, ideas that will help shape our minds on these ideas. So let's start to wrap this up by getting some possible uh, ways out of the darkness into some kind of, hopefully some kind of light, not necessarily heat. 
Yeah, yeah. Let me wrap up where we where we were. Um, I, I pull out of my notes here um, a really good quote that wraps up what it was like in the 19th century. Again, just to give us a sense of what's informing the debate today, there was a um, a suffragette, you know, somebody arguing for women's vote, who put it this way, and this is a direct quote. Okay. The, the affairs of government and industry have been too long dominated by the crude, warlike, acquisitive hard-headed, amoral qualities of men. And they, sh- they should no longer be deprived of the temperate influence of women's compassion, spirituality, and moral sensitivity. This could be yesterday's headline. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This, de- this debate between you know, men being demoralized, being uh, reduced to... Uh, reduced to... Um, crude, warlike, acquisitive, and the idea that women must take them in hand, and that women are morally superior, and that women have a right, therefore, to make moral demands on men. This pattern has been going on for a long time. So, the solutions. If the problem started when men left the home to work out in the new factories and offices, we have to look at that as a, how can we maybe resolve that, how can we maybe um, temper the influence of men being gone all day? I, the, the solution that feminists offer is, well, women can be gone all day, too. That's not a solution. That makes it worse. Right. They tell us there's no difference. A man can stay at home or a woman can go to work. Does it make a difference? Is, is that really the case? So I think the solution is to recover as, as much as we can the traditional household. In other words, it's if the problem is that the family has lost so many of its functions, mm. the answer is to regain its functions. And so we can look at p- groups of people who are trying to do this. Um, homeschooling families are trying to recover the educational per- function of the home you know, that, that men, men and women, that mothers and fathers, traditionally had. People who are starting home businesses okay. um, are, are recovering the economic function of the home and recovering the notion that it would be great for husbands and wives to be actually raising their own children, teaching them the the um, skills they need for the workplace. And the irony is that with technology today, it enables us to bring many of those skills home again. Homeschooling, yeah, there's a lot. And, well, and telecommuting, various mm. ways. You know, I'm, being a mom with children, I know a lot of women who are working from home. I don't know any, almost nobody who, who is not working at least part-time from home that, and who has children. Uh, there's a group in, I used to live in Washington, D.C., and there's a group called Mothers at Home. Okay. <laughs> and, but in D.C., there's, there's a tremendous in, uh, in, uh, pressure for women to stay in the workplace when they have children, and so they need support groups to encourage them that, yes, you can stay home. It's okay to raise your own kids. Um, but the most frequent request they get is, tell me how I can make money while I'm at home. Tell, tell me how I can have uh, you know, some aspect of my work done from the home so I can work it around my children. The, the biggest theme in homeschooling groups now is called bringing dad home. Bringing dad home. <laughs> in other words, can we start a home-based business where at least while your children are young, okay. you can work from home at least at least part of the time? And frankly, not all jobs can be done at home, but parts of all jobs virtually can be done at home. In, in the colonial era, it wasn't just farmers and carpenters who worked at home. Lawyers, businessmen, doctors, all worked from a home office. Mm. With their children and their wives around them. And you can still get anecdotal stories about that today. In, in my book, Total Truth, I do give some stories. Um, one of them was a doctor, in fact, who decided he wanted to recover that home-centered, neighborhood-centered feeling that, um, that we had in the colonial era. And so he did. He left his big city practice, okay. opened an office in his home. Uh-huh. Um, and, and the the reporter telling the story has a, a very heartwarming story about um, being there a day when a little neighborhood girl broke her arm, and while the father, who's the doctor, is fixing the uh, fixing the you know, setting the cast and all, um, and the mother works as the bookkeeper, 
and the children gather around and bring cookies. <laughs> the children gather around the little girl and give her cookies to comfort her. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really is a recovery of that pre-industrial pattern mm. where the family works together. Okay. And so right now, it's almost anecdotal. You just have to find stories like that that give you inspiration. I was, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I was, um, I was at a conference once when my book was being sold. Okay. And uh, during one of the lectures, I saw somebody reading my book during the lecture, and I thought, well, that's kind of a compliment. <laughs> first to read my book instead of listening. But afterwards he ran out and started talking really loud and fast into his cell phone uh-huh. and I thought oh is he angry uh-huh. <laughs> did he read something that made him mad uh-huh. then he came over and introduced himself and he said I opened your book to chapter 12 this you know, chapter on the industrial revolution and how it changed the home and he said I immediately called my wife and said we want to have that pre-industrial life pattern oh wow <laughs> we want to start some kind of a home-based way of working so that we can, I can be involved in raising my kids. Um, and, you know, it's com- immediate conversion. Oh, that's that wonderful. Vision. Yeah. Having a, a, the true pre-industrial household where work is done primarily in the home, at least while your children are young. I'm not saying it's ideal for everyone all the time, but while you have young children in the home, it is ideal if you can bring at least parts of your work home and be interacting with your children all day. Mm, okay, so spend more time at home, spend cultivate that, that relationship with your children as they're young. Uh, so, so then, the, the going back to the question I asked you earlier regarding the masculinity and femininity issues that are created by God, um, the the differences between those should we be emphasizing those differences, or should we be trying to bring a complementary work ethic together? Uh, with that, um, it seems to be what I'm hearing from you is um, don't focus on that, but focus on what is this best for the children. Is that what I'm getting at here? Well, that's a good way of putting it. I am definitely oriented towards what's best for the children. Or, yeah. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm obviously I'm not um, like you said earlier. People have different temperaments, and sometimes a woman is more work oriented, and, and a man is more relational oriented. And he will maybe have a greater role in raising the children. Um, and, and just knowing the history can sometimes change our understanding of even Bible verses. You mentioned earlier Bible verses that talk about uh, from Genesis all the way to the New Testament, bringing up, telling fathers to bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which mm-hmm. is in Ephesians. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for a modern office worker or factory worker who's gone from home all day, comes home tired, sees his kids for an hour, and then they go to bed. There's no way you're going to raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in the way that the Bible writers were thinking. They Mm. were thinking of the kind of childhood that children had back, that even Jesus still had, working with his father all day. Or consider the passage urging women to be workers at home. So that's oh. Titus, Titus 2.5. Okay. Well, of course, everyone was a worker at home at that <laughs> time. <laughs> they worked on the farm or the home industry or home-based craft. There was nowhere else to work. There were a few exceptions, like sailors and soldiers. But otherwise, men were workers at home as well. Uh, like I mentioned, even professional men, businessmen, lawyers worked in a home office. And so, understanding the history may change the way that we interpret verses like this. It's not some kind of a uh, universal prescription on women working, Mm -hmm. because they were working. Um, So it's more, the meaning of the verse has more to do with get to to work. If you read the rest of the verse, you know, it has to do with idleness and gossiping and so on. So the emphasis was not work at home. The emphasis was get to work. Okay, <laughs> right. And Proverbs thirty-one is big for that one. For um, one of my friends is it's one of her inspirations. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's the pre-industrial life form. And yeah. and Luther's wife was was very much of a Proverbs thirty-one woman too. Okay, yeah, that's she wonderful. Owned, she, yeah. she owned a bre- she owned a brewery. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Yes. <laughs> oh, try to talk about that in the Baptist congregation there. Oh, oh, right. oh, all right. Let me let me start wrapping this up uh, quickly. Uh, we haven't touched on me too at all. Uh, we haven't touched about the masculinity of God or why God is referred to as a male. Um, I'll get. Uh, 
I can, I can edit that out or cut those in. Would you like me to quickly address those, or do you want to start wrapping this up and just uh, close it? Well, you know, I, I think maybe I'd rather wrap it up because okay. I'm actually I'm t- I have a I have a conference talk that I've given at a couple of conferences called Toxic Masculinity and the Me Too Movement. Yeah, where can I find that? Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's findable yet. I don't think it's online. Okay. Um, That's why I can't find it. I'm, I'm turning it into a book, and so okay. there's some things that I may I may end up thinking differently on certain issues, and so yes. some that happens when you write books. Yeah, it <laughs> changes. Um, I, I, have an, I have a good idea. I have a great idea. I'm, I'm going to give you the conclusion. I'm going to, hold on. I'm going to pull this out. Okay. Let me give you the conclusion of this. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's look at how Christianity offers a solution to the war between the sexes. I, I, There's a fantastic um, book by a Harvard sociologist who's not a Christian. Uh, excuse me. Okay. A fantastic book by his, a Harvard historian who's a secular writer, and he says, your concept of God shapes your idea of manhood. Mm. And he says, in cultures that hold polytheism, the gods are constantly fighting each other, and so it leads to an emphasis on military valor, that the heroic virtues. And so, think of the ancient Greek gods, or the Norse gods. To be a man was to be a warrior. Uh-huh. Then he said, in monotheism, God is a transcendent creator, which leads to an emphasis on power. And here he said, think of Islam. To be a man is to exercise power. Okay. In Judaism, God is not only the creator, but also the father. He's in covenant relationship with his people. And so in Jewish culture, to be a man is to exercise fatherly authority. Hmm. And then, and, and again, remember this is a non-Christian writing. He says, then Christianity arose, and it made things more complex. So it retained the concept of, uh, the Jewish concept of God, mm-hmm. but it tempered it with the concept of servant leadership. So Jesus says, I'm among you as one who serves in Luke, or I am gentle and humble in heart in Matthew. So, his, so Christianity challenged the earlier notions of what it meant to be a man. And this historian writes, gentleness, love, and compassion are now virtues, masculine virtues. Mm. So the answer to the Me Too movement and toxic masculinity is to recognize that it's not women imposing female virtues on men, but it's men recovering truly masculine virtues. You know, historically, like the the uh, example I read to you from the suffragette, yeah. who said, you know, we, we need to bring women's compassion and morality into the public square and impose these virtues on men. It's never going to work. If these are seen as female virtues, no self-respecting man is going to accept them. We need to recover the idea that being a husband and a father is a masculine virtue. That being compassionate and gentle are masculine virtues. To be sexually faithful uh-huh. is a masculine virtue. That mm. man does not to me, you know, does not mean to be sexually, uh, you know, aggressive. Wow. wow. And, and here's and, and let me leave you with one more um, thing to think about. Is this just an abstract ideal? Okay. How much do Christians actually live out the model of servant leadership? In practice, and we're in luck because there was an in-depth study done on evangelical Christian families. It was done by a sociologist named Brad Wilcox. He's at the University of Virginia, mm-hmm. one of the leading family sociologists. So we have empirical data to answer this question. Okay. And he starts out. The reason he focused on evangelical families and men in particular is because he saw that. Evangelicals are often attacked on this issue in public, and they are accused of, of being more likely to practice child abuse and domestic violence because they have the notion of male headship. The, you probably know Cokie Roberts. She's mm-hmm. a TV news journalist. Mm-hmm. She actually said once in public, conservative Protestant gender ideology can clearly lead to abuse, both physical and emotional. Or here's two sociologists. They say the seeds of wife-beating lie in the subordination of females and the subjected to male authority. And it is conservative religion that makes 
these authoritarian relationships seem morally just. And even some Christians agree. Wilcox quotes a, a psychologist who identifies as a Christian feminist who says, the underlying power differential in a marriage sanctioned by the traditional understanding of scripture is related to the abusive power that characterizes some Christian homes. So he, Wilcox said, okay, this is the, this is the public um, image of Christian, in particular evangelical Christians. Let's look at the evidence. So he did a major study, and he looked at um, evangelicals. He looked at mainline Christians. Okay. And he looked at secular people. And what he found may seem paradoxical. He said men, what he found was men who attend evangelical churches. On the one hand, yes, they do tend to hold to the idea of male headship. And they participate less in housework. They do about an hour less of housework than other American husbands. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Uh, um, But but they they also show much higher levels of emotional involvement with both their wives and the children. They're more likely to be involved in discipline. They supervise homework. They enforce bedtime. They set limits on screen time, etc., they're more likely to express affection and praise with their children. They're more likely to sp- uh, spend time on activities with their children, play with them, read to them, take them to soccer practice. And then they surveyed the wives separately. It's very important that you do this separately. Because mm. <laughs> um, if, if a man is abusive, his wife might not say it in his presence. Yes, yes, unfortunately, yeah. So, and wives all of evangelical husbands also were the most likely to say that their husbands express affection and understanding. And of all three groups, these wives ranked highest in terms of saying they felt loved and appreciated by their husbands. Hmm. And so Wilcox actually wrote a book. You can, you can find it on Amazon. It's called Soft Patri- Patriarchs. Soft Patriarchs. And he calls them patriarchs because they do hold to male headship, male mm-hmm. authority in the home. But ironically... They also fit the progressive ideal of warm, affectionate, attentive, emotionally engaged husbands and fathers. And so he concludes that uh, we need to change the public image of evangelical Protestant men. Um, They also have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any group. Is that right? Interesting. But 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 to find to get that to get that statistic, he had to make one more distinction. Okay. He distinguished between evangelical men who actively and regularly attend church versus nominal evangelicals, because we have a lot of those in the states, right? People who claim some sort of a historic connection to being Baptist, because I live in the South, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> or my family background. You know, people will often say, um, I, I'm Baptist, I'm Lutheran, um, but it's just a family background. So he distinguished between these two groups, and that turned out to be incredibly important. Hmm. Because um, nominal Christians actually are more likely to divorce than any of the other groups, more likely than um, mainline Christians. More likely than secular people, hmm. they're most likely to divorce. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness with their expressions of love and understanding, and they have the highest level of domestic abuse. Wow. So active evangelicals have the lowest level, which is about 2.8%. Nominal evangelicals have the highest level of domestic violence at 7.2%. Hmm. So this is a very important for us as Christians because most most statistical surveys group these two groups together, right? Yes. You know, yes. Self- no difference. Right. You self-identify as evangelical, you get grouped together. And in fact, they are at the two extremes. The active churchgoers are the, are the highest in terms of having a good family life and nominal evangelicals are at the lowest. So the key factor is not just identifying with some sort of religious tradition, 
you know, being culturally connected. The key factor is actively attending church. And you know, churches, of course, men are getting messages telling them the family was created by God. It was not some evolutionary accident that they are accountable to God for how they treat their family. And they're getting the social, social support from other men who share their commitment to faith and family. Mm-hmm. So Wilcox sums up his study by saying churches are one of the very few institutions in American life that actually foster male involvement in the family. He puts it this way, it turns men's hearts toward home. Wow. So we do have a practical answer to resolving the war between men and women, the toxic masculinity versus the Me Too movement. And it has stood the test of empirical research. And that's why we should be bold in bringing that answer into the public square as a solution to the the current war between the sexes. Well, this is what I can't think of a better way to end this interview. That was just profound. I have to go over that and just really uh, dig into the meat of that and the importance of it to us, all of us, um, me as a man and, uh, and, and my family. Professor Piercy, I really appreciate your time and the things you're doing. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. It was a, more than a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye.